Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in experts and authors to help writers of all genres compose more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. New York Times bestselling author Ralph Pizzullo steps into the interrogation room to try getting his story straight about this latest release called Saigon, which is a fictionalized memoir about his time living in Vietnam from 1962 to 1965. Ralph's father was assigned there in his role with the State Department, and they lived in Vietnam during the Tonkin Gulf incident, the overthrow of President Diem, and a number of coup d'etats and almost daily Viet Cong terrorist attacks against Americans. He went on to spend time in Washington, D.C., Mexico, Bolivia, Colombia, Guatemala, Uruguay, and Nicaragua. He lived in Bolivia while Che Guevara was trying to set up a guerrilla base camp there, and he was in Nicaragua during the Sandinista Revolution. That experience later became the topic in his nonfiction book, At the Fall of Somoza, which he wrote with his father. After college, Ralph became a freelance journalist and also worked for the National Endowment for the Arts. He began writing plays, and 14 of his works have premiered on Manhattan stages. One was opted for movies, and Ralph was commissioned to write the screenplay, his first. He eventually moved to L.A., wrote screenplays for movies and TV, and held a myriad of other jobs along the way. He released his first mystery novel in 2003, and he's collaborated with directors like Oliver Stone and James Foley. He's also worked with folks like former CIA undercover operative Gary Bernstein and former LAPD detective Steve Hodel. Ralph, thank you so much for coming on Writers on the Beat. It's uh, an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, that's only because you don't realize that uh, my mother and my wife are the only ones who listen to this. So <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I got an audi- audience of five. That's okay. Yeah. Um, now, I have been reading through your uh, this, this fictionalized memoir, Saigon, Mm-hmm. And this is an absolutely incredible story and an, an incredible read, both to me as a as a reader to be, I think, kind of both informed and entertained, but also uh, looking at this from a craft and writing perspective, this is a really incredible story. And oh, thank I you. am, thank you. Uh, you know, going through this, like what what made you decide to put this together, to put this piece of your soul out to the world? Um. You know, it was uh, it was such. A, I think it. I hope it comes through in the book. It was such a, a formative time in my life. Um, it was such a special. Uh, it was such an incredible time for a number of reasons because, um, like, history was kind of unfolding around me, and I was at a young age where I was very open minded and I was just kind of absorbing everything. And to be there and to see things like uh, the overthrow of the Xi'an government and the lead up to that and um, American policy kind of unfolding. And because my father was a diplomat working at the embassy, you know, I heard all the opinions and and kind of the, the way that they were looking at the country and looking at the, the, the pending conflict, right? Because when I first got there, I think there were like 8,000 or 10,000 US advisors, wow. American advisors, and then it, it, the escalation started, right? And, um, and 
you know, what I was seeing and hearing from my father, like the perspective of my father and his friends who I looked up to, like mm -hmm. these were like brilliant people, interesting people, was so different from what I was getting from, um, like I was, a, the, 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 I happened to be the ball boy for the U.S. Special Forces team, right? Right. These were the guys out in the field, like fighting with the Montagnards, yards, right? Yeah. And this is 1963, 1962. And they're going, you know, after the game, we'd sit around and they'd drink beer and I'd drink soda and we'd have hamburgers. And I was like their mascot, right? And they'd go like, hey, you know, we just got back from, you know, this battle and this, this village. And I was like, oh, man, like, what was it like? Like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, it's crazy. They don't know who, who the hell, they think we're from the moon when we show up. They don't know who the president is. They don't know who the president of the United States is. They don't know what the United States is. Mm -hmm. None of this. And I'm like, yeah, but they're communists, right? And they're like, they're not communists. They're like villagers. Yeah. And then I'd go home and I'd, you know, my father, I'd say, hey, dad, dad, I spoke to like Leroy or this guy or something. And he told me this and my father like, oh, nah, where, where did you get this from? I'm like, dad, these were the guys. They're up there fighting. Like they're the ones out in the field. And they're saying like, you leave, you leave Saigon and nobody knows who President Ziem is, who was the president at the time. And he's like, oh, that, that's ridiculous. That's just not true. And I'd be like, well, why would they say it, dad? Like, why would they tell me I'm a kid? Like, yeah, because well, they're confused. So I was sitting <laughs> with this like dichotomy, right? Yeah. And then I had this other crazy circumstance because it was so dangerous for Americans in Vietnam. I only went to school. I went to school. The bu a bus would pull up to my, the side of my house, the gate of my house, with covered with armor and a. a wire over the windows and a guy would come to a, a marine would come to to my into my house with a submachine gun full armor right and he grabbed me put me and my my sister and brother like we'd get a huddle under his arm and he'd rush us into the bus and there would be another uh, marine on the bus with full like automatic weapons like on the ready right and our school was like a bunker. I mean, it had, there were sandbags everywhere. There were uh, uh, machine gun emplacements on the roof. I mean, it was insane. So hmm. we, because of the danger, we only went to school for about uh, in the morning from like 8 to 12. So I had the whole afternoon to myself. And I learned that the embassy had a shop, a maintenance shop, uh, staffed with like, Vietnamese workers. And I volunteered to, to work for them, right? Sounds like a playground. It was like a playground great, for me, yeah, right? And yeah. so this I, guy- I want to go work there now. <laughs> yeah, his name was Mohammed. He would pick me up. He, I'd get out of school at, at 12 and everybody else huddled onto their school buses. And I'd go off with this guy, either on the back of his motorcycle or in a pickup truck. And we'd go and we'd visit these different construction jobs then. I'd pitch in, I'd paint, I'd, you know, it was like all fun for me. I was yeah. having a blast, right? In the meantime, I'm, I'm picking up Vietnamese because all the guys I'm working with are Vietnamese. I was uh, 
growing at the time. So I'm maybe like five, six or five, seven. I'm about the same height as them, but you know, they're all like at least 10 years older than me. I'm a kid. And so I, I started to look, talk to them. I was on their soccer team. I used to go to their weddings, the funerals. I became, those were my friends because you couldn't socialize with American kids because they were all home and it was dangerous to travel around the city. But I figured, hey, the hell with that, man. I'm having fun and this is, a, I'm here and I really like this place and I like these people despite the danger. So, you know, I'm just going to trust that I'm going to be okay. Like, why would I be a, a kid, be a target? And if I am, whatever, right? And so I started getting this whole different perspective on the city and the people than practically any other American who was there, right? Because my dad, he went to the embassy. He hung out with, with Americans. He didn't speak Vietnamese. I was hanging out with soldiers. I was hanging out with all these different people, right? Yeah. And because you're a kid and you're 11, 12 years old, people tell you stuff, right? Yeah. You ask them, and I was curious, like, well, what's, what's it like? What's this? And they go, ah, it's like this. They're, they're just honest. And so I'm getting all this information, and it, you know, it was just like a, a very electric, exciting time. And then, of course, there was there was violence. There was mm -hmm. a lot of violence against Americans because they really wanted to drive us out. Plus, there was a lot of political turmoil within Vietnam because the president was not particularly popular. And the United States wanted to replace him because he didn't want a lot of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. and, and the military, our military, like they really wanted to dig in, right? Yeah. And so there was all this stuff going on and I was just in the middle of it. And it was such a, a interesting time in my life. And I, I truly love Vietnam and the people. They're amazing people. Um, and uh, I just felt compelled to write about it. Now, with this being a, a fictionalized memoir that's really about your story, what as a as a writer what just made you decide to tell this through the character michael rather than through ralph as as more of an autobiography um i i guess it was just like a a, a sense of uh you know being honest uh like if i if i sold, told it as ralph i would have to like name like all the people and uh describe the people and uh and, you know, out of respect to them, I, you know, didn't do that. And so I fictionalized uh, a lot of people. Uh, some people were, you know, if you read the book, you'll see like some people were like badly hurt. Um, and I don't know if the, their families would want to talk about what happened to them. Um, so it was really just like out of, you know, being respectful, like, okay, to the reader and, you know, to these other people, right? So um, that's all. That, you know, that's something I've always um, wondered about with autobiographies in general, right? Like, it, it seems that uh, I almost expect as the reader that an autobiography has a message that they want to convey. Because, right. you know, there's no way, like, if I were going to write an autobiography, um, you inherently kind of leave out some of the negative stuff 
And I think more importantly, the people around us would get glossed over. Right. And, you know, in a, in a fictional character in, especially in the past, you get a lot more freedom, like you said, to, to be honest and to be a little, uh, potentially a lot more unflinching about what actually happened and what, what you saw. Yeah. That was part, that was part of my motivation because I, I I'm the kind of person like, you know, if I'm going to take the time to, to, to write it, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I want to get into it. Right. I don't, I don't want to give you a superficial view of it. Um, and you know, things are ugly and people are, you know, do destructive things and so on. And, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to show all that. You mentioned it, uh, touched on it a little bit in uh, earlier response, but you grew up overseas um, in a variety of places, but during really formative years, very important years in, in a young man's life. Yeah. And I, I wonder, looking back on it, especially as you've, you've written a couple of books now about your experiences, um, how do you think living outside the U.S. and living the life of a, of a, of a diplomat of a, a state official's son uh, changed your life and what impact did that have? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's kind of formed my life, right? So uh, I was fortunate, some would say, and other people would say like unfortunate. Um, I grew up, you know, really overseas, mostly in Latin America, but also in Vietnam. And because of my father was a very ambitious guy, he saw that his career would advance if he, if he served in hardship posts. So we went, we didn't go to Madrid or Rome, which he had was uh, offered. No, we went to Saigon, Ciudad Juarez, La Paz, Bolivia, uh, Bogota, Colombia, Nicaragua, places, Guatemala, places like that. Um, so it was always, um, every place I went, uh, it was, uh, you know, like almost at a state of war, right? So, um, you know, it gives you a very, very different perspective. First of all, um, you learn that, you know, life is like a very, very precious and, uh, something that can take a golf, be gone any minute. Like I knew lots of people. And my father had lots of friends who, you know, we'd come over to dinner and you'd hear two days later, we're shot dead. And you go to the funeral and you'd be like, wow, like who shot him? Like why, whatever. So there was that sense. And then the other thing that was really important and it was, you know, every place you went, it was like a different culture, right? Different way of live, different ways of living, but they all were, valid like they all kind of like you know made sense right they were all interesting you couldn't say well this one was better than that one it was just like well they they made you know different choices because of geography or historical reasons or something so you know it wasn't like it wasn't it couldn't be judgmental right you were just kind of understanding like why do these people think this and why do they think differently in Vietnam? and then you go like oh yeah you know uh the history's different, the climate's different, you know, all these things like figure into it. There was that part. And then the other part was like, I had no TV, <laughs> no TV, uh, no real, not a lot of media. 
And so it was all just direct experience. It wasn't an experience that was like through a lens or interpreted to me. It was just being out on the street, observing things. And, um, and it was just, you know, that's the best thing is to just experience things directly. What have you seen? What did you hear? And you learn to be like very alert. Number one, you had to be alert because these were dangerous places and you get like, you know, very involved. And so if somebody says, would tell you, well, uh, 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 this is what's going on. You go like, no, it's not. That's not what I see. That's not what I feel. Like, where did you get your information from? And they go, well, this guy told me, who is this guy? Yeah. So, you know, you just, uh, uh, you know, and when I came back to the States, I, I, was, I was struck at how, like everybody accepts information that's like second, third, fourth hand, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just found, think that's a very, it's dangerous and it's also misleading, right? Because, uh, you know, you gotta, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you grow up the way I did, you, you, you learn to trust your own feelings and your own instincts. Like there's nobody else to help you. There's no guidebook to read. There's no, you know, you're just out there trying to figure it out. Like, are these people, do they like us? Do they not like us? I had, you know, so many crazy, dangerous experiences, right? And, uh, you know, you find your way through and you find, like when I was in Vietnam, I met this guy, Muhammad, right? Mm -hmm. He was from Malaysia, uh, had, was living in Vietnam. He had had bad smallpox as a kid. So he was mm -hmm. a very pockmarked guy, yeah. uh, very dark skin, right? And he was a man of like 35 years old. He had a family. Uh, we became, I was like a 13, 12, 13 year old kid. We became best friends. Like we really, you know, he was a great guy. He was like mm -hmm. a saint, you know, and he, and, and I was kind to him too, you know, and it was like a beautiful relationship. And then of course, when my father left Vietnam, I never saw him again in my life. I never I never commu could communicate with him. Yeah. Right? All I knew was Muhammad. I don't even know his last name. Right? <laughs> well, there's, there's yeah. only one or two of those in country. So that's right. <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah, there were like five Muhammads that worked for yeah. the U.S. Embassy. So even when I, I, I when, when the things were falling apart and I was trying to find him in the 70s, they were like, well, you know, we have five Muhammads who work for us. Do you know which one it is? And I'm like, I don't know his last name, but he worked here and so on. And everybody was crazy and they couldn't find his records. But um, so I, I learned that too, is that, you know, like every two or three years we would move and you'd make friends and, and you'd, you know, turn, learn to appreciate a place. And then you were just kind of ripped out of it. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you learn how to adapt quickly to different circumstances mm -hmm. and then at the same time it's kind of like a transient experience because people come and go and you know when I got older you know you'd have girlfriends and you'd be like holding hands and changing changing rings and all that stuff and then go to the airport and your your parents are going to you know your next assignment is Bogota Colombia and she's going you know to Africa Wow. 
never see, you know, you yeah. catch up with her, you know, 10 years later, right? Yeah. Uh, when the internet came along and it was just like, uh, you know, so there were, you know, painful, but also you just learned to kind of live in the moment. Mm-hmm. Type of thing. Yeah. Now, one of the things that has really struck me in reading through this, um, I, in, especially my, my detective series, more than anything else, I, I kind of feel like I cheat the system because I write mostly based on my own experiences and the things I saw and trained in, in, in my own caseload. Yeah. And I feel like on the one hand, I get to probably write and produce faster because I don't have to make anything up. I can change some names, change some circumstance and tell it like it was. But at the same time, to me, the double-edged sword of that is that a lot of times, um, and sometimes it, it, it'll happen kind of by accident that I'll dredge up something that I'd forgotten about or um, I relive something I wish I hadn't lived through in the first place or uh, some, even some really incredibly positive and, and, and happy memory comes back. Um, and I wondered what some of your, what your experience was like in writing this and, and deciding, you know, what of you to put into this and, and how that process was kind of internally. Right. Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a very interesting experience. Uh, it was difficult in certain respects because there are certain things that, uh, when you go back like over history, um, and, and, you know, the, the, the book describes like some traumatic things that happened to me and those were difficult to relive, right? Um, painful, um, because you kind of pack them away and you think you've dealt with them. And then when you go back and you kind of relive it, which you have to do in writing the book and it's right there. Um, and that was, uh, you know, surprising and, and difficult. And then other time and other things, it's like when you go back and you look at it, um, when you start to uncover it, it's, it's surprising at how alive those things are, are still like, you know, within you, right? Because yeah. um, so much has happened since then. And you think, oh yeah, I lived in Vietnam. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Like nobody remembers that. And man, when you go back, it's boom, it's all there. And you remember faces and uh, conversations and smells. And it's, 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 it's uh, yeah, really interesting to do that. Yeah. yeah, I would recommend it, you know. For, for writers who, are, who think they've got their own story to tell, whether, you know, in autobiographic or, or memoir form, what, advice and counsel would you give to them having done this a, a, a few times now? Yeah. Uh, I, I would just, you know, what I would say is, uh, you know, probably what I would say uh, for a lot of different books is, is, is just be, uh, you know, as honest and personal uh, as, as you can um, and really try not to think of like, how you're going to be seen or like what the impact is going to be. Um, it's really hard to write when you've got that a critical voice, you know, looking at you and talking, you know, watching everything you do and criticizing everything, everything you do. And it was particularly hard in this case because 
you know, I was writing about my parents a lot, my brother and sister. And so it was, you know, a lot of times I would edit stuff and I go, well, I, you know, I, I don't want to say that about my father's going to read this or my sister's going to read this. And then at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> at a certain point, I was just like, look, you know, I'm just going to let lay it all out there. Like, this is how I felt. This is mm -hmm. what happened. Um, this is this is what I remember. Uh, I don't have any agenda. I'm not trying to hurt anybody or condemn anybody. But uh, th this is this was my experience, you know, and I'm just going to try to be as true to that as possible. And, you know, and so, uh, yeah, I might get a couple, you know, nasty emails or so on, but, you know, I'll deal with that. Um, so that, that's what I re would recommend, you know, is, uh, look, we, we learn from one another and it's really important that we do that. And in order to learn from anybody, that person who's telling you, and you know, the more honest they are, uh, the better it is. And I, like, I've worked with a lot of, uh, I've had, I've been fortunate, you know, worked with a lot of, written books with a lot of amazing people who had a lot of amazing experiences. And what, when we, whenever we start, I always tell them, they're, they're like, well, you know, what should I do? Or how should I tell this, you know, what, what's important? And I just say, you know, the more honest you are and the more personal you are, the better. Because people pick up on that. Readers pick up on that, right? And if you're trying to pretend to be honest or, it doesn't work. It's just people know when somebody's, you know, like really squaring with them or holding something back or trying to color it a certain way. And in the end, uh, I, you know, it's, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. So just be honest. Uh, if the cop was bad or if he did this, even if he was your friend, like, hey, man, you did this and I know you feel about it, but I'm going to tell it like that's, that's what happened. And, and I'll tell them how, you know, you, you felt badly about it afterwards. Okay. And, you know, so it's like, look, we all, we all, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, get caught up in stuff and that's what other people learn from. Right. So just be human, you know, human. I think people, have this uh, this image that everybody's like trying to live up to, whether you're a writer or a policeman or a CIA agent or whatever you are, that you're supposed to be like a certain way. I remember when I first started writing, I was with this group of authors and we were going out somewhere. And one of the guys turned to me and he goes, what are you wearing, man? And I'm like, what? He goes, you're not dressed like an author. I'm like, what? <laughs> What? What is that? I didn't know there was a uniform. I didn't either. Yeah, yeah. yeah authors should have like a leather blazer like mine. And I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, go away. Yeah. So yeah, just just uh, everybody's got an interesting story. Everybody, everybody I meet, everybody's got an interesting story, no matter what they did. And, uh, and I, I've always been interested in other people's stories like rather than my own. So yeah. that's, that was a, a challenge of this, right? So is my story going to be interesting? And, you know, I had told 
aspects of this that so many people over the years have ever was like, come on, Ralph, we've got to write about this. And finally, I just you know, sat down and did it. Now, you've got a tremendous number of works already under your belt. I, I wonder what you currently have as works in, the, in progress. What are you, what are you currently uh, working on today that readers can look forward to in the next uh, few months next year? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got, a, uh, got a, a couple of things that I'm working on. Um, they'll hopefully be out soon. I don't really like to talk about um, like specific what it's about like before it comes out. But, uh, and I'm also working on a podcast that oh, fantastic. Um, it comes out, uh, it, it's called Heroes Behind the Headlines. Wow. And they're all stories of like uh, military, CIA, FBI uh, agents, police officers, firemen, um, all kinds of different people who have done like heroic things that their, their story, them telling it themselves. So wow. that, that'll be, that, I think it launches uh, beginning of next year. Wow, that's going to be a powerful, uh, powerful series, man. Oh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited. So, uh, you know, I like to put, you know, get people comfortable so mm-hmm. then have them tell their story. Get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where can readers uh, find you, follow you on uh, all the, the social media channels and stay in yeah, touch with um, all things know, rough? Ralph- yeah, Ralph Pizzullo, uh, author.com is my website because it used to be ralphpizzullo.com, but somebody hacked my website. <laughs> now they claim they're a fan, but I don't, I'm waiting for the like the, the bomb to drop, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm ralphpizzulloauthor.com and I'm, all, I'm on Facebook and uh, Instagram and all that stuff. I'm not like a... I don't post as much as I should, but I'm, I, uh, you know, you can reach me one way or the other. And I'm, I'm, you know, happy to talk to anybody. Like, I've done a lot of books where just people came to me with their stories and, uh, and I helped them tell it. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the things I like to do on the show is I, I like to, uh, like to end on a, a bit of a hypothetical, if you're willing to play along. Sure. Absolutely. So, um, God forbid it should come to pass, Ralph, but yes. if you were to wake up tomorrow yeah. and find that you've been murdered, right. and I know you don't read a lot of, uh, a, a lot of crime fiction, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you play to, play to real life here, but if you got to pick yeah. two folks to investigate <laughs> your own homicide, who would you want on your case? Wow. Gee, I, I would love Sam Spade yeah. to investigate it because it would be fun uh, and there'd be like a lot of colorful characters in there and he would make it sound like really interesting. Um, and who else? Yeah, I like the old fashioned, like the Dashiell Hammetts and the yeah. Chandlers. Uh, yeah, they, they just had a like a flair and a color that I appreciate. Yeah, well, I, I I think your murder shall be avenged, sir. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, it was absolutely great talking to you, Ralph. I really am so grateful for your time and sharing your expertise, especially with such a personal piece of writing with us. Oh, thank you, Gavin. It's been a pleasure, and I I, uh, I look forward to reading your books, and hopefully one day we'll uh, we'll meet in person. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.
I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been New York Times bestselling author Ralph Pizzullo. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.